0: Thanks for joining us this morning. All right, so microphone's on. There are handouts in the back. Zach's coming around with those to uh, serve you in that capacity. As you think about the various and multiplied commands of Scripture that God has given us. And you can fill in the blank as you go from Genesis to Revelation with God's requirements for you who are in Christ. Various commands like let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but such as is useful for edification. When you come to the end of Mark 16 and verse 15 where Christ's last command to His church is given and He says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creature creation. And you think, what a mammoth task. How can we ever fulfill that? When you look at the reversal that James gives us, in James 1, when you've got trials and tribulations that come into your life, he says what? Count it all joy. How in the world are we supposed to do that? When Paul instructs us that we are to pray without ceasing, Or he says to the husband in Ephesians 5, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up. And I look at that and it's like this is an impossible requirement. Or the wife where he says, wives, be subject to your husband. And Peter gives the added caveat that you are to submit to your husband even if he is an unbeliever, one that is disobedient to the word. That's not easy. How about in Ephesians 4.24 where the Apostle is saying that we are to put on the new self which is created in Christ Jesus. Or he says in the next chapter, be careful how you walk. Don't walk as the unwise, but walk as a wise person. As we are to be the church, as we are to admonish one another and practice all the other 40 plus one another's of the New Testament, as we're to be ambassadors of Christ, as we are to practice biblical ministry in this world until Jesus returns for His church, how do we do God's work God's way? Which model for ministry is biblical? You see, there's, there's a problem that we as mankind are confronted as we, as we look at the various requirements and commands and admonitions of Scripture and we think uh, what a huge task God's got for the saints to do. We've got to come to one quick conclusion is that we cannot find the answer. We cannot invent it. We cannot rediscover ministry or Christianity because we've got severe obstacles in life. We've got sin, we've got our own self, and we've got Satan all opposing us in pursuing godliness. And because of the problem, the obstacles... To finding how to accomplish God's work. We must have divine revelation. What I'm pushing at, beloved, is that the ability on how is not within ourselves. There are many that suggest that it is within us, some like. Possibly if you'd recognize names like uh, Bill Hybels or Rick Warren would suggest that they've got an answer as to how to do church, how to do ministry, how to reach the unreached, how to reach unsaved Sally and Harry, and uh, let's, let's reconstruct the church so that they'll be, feel comfortable. Um, how do we minister to the needs of man? Uh, you know, Jim Dobson or Jay Adams would... Uh, Say that they've got the, either one of them on on opposite sides of the fence would say that they've got the proper model. Is biblical ministry a matter of staffing or just finding the right program to make ministry blossom and flourish? Is the missing ingredient congregational or elder led church governance? Or is it to be more like uh, corporate America and the modern? Kiwanis Club. Several verses on the obstacles that we face on how to accomplish biblical ministry are verses that we've looked at, and some of them we've uh, we've looked at fairly recently. Uh, Yesterday in uh, men's Bible study, we were in Genesis 6. And we were reflecting on a post-fall world that we live in. The biblical description of the obstacle that we face in life, what we are is we've got polluted roots. The fall's reality is very clear. Genesis 2 and 3, we live in a post-fall, post-Genesis 3 world. Paul writes to the Romans in Romans 5. I think we're set now. That was loose. Are we good now? Can you hear me? All right. Sorry about that. Romans 5, Paul looks at the fall of man into sin. He said that sin's been imputed to us by our father Adam and thus deadness. These are the, this is the biblical description. Uh, David records in Psalms 51 that in, in sin, my mother conceived me. Ephesians 2, we're dead in trespasses and sins. That's our condition. What can a dead person say regarding minist- how to do ministry? He, can't, he, he has nothing to bring to the table. What can they teach you? How can they counsel you? The reality, as 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 God reveals it, uh, you know, who, uh, Job fourteen. Who can make the clean out of the unclean? No, no matter what pretense of religiosity or, or morality. Uh, so many verses we could look at that we've looked at in the uh, in the recent past. Jeremiah seventeen nine. The heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately wicked. So, we've got polluted roots from the very beginning, and uh, yesterday in Bible study we were looking at uh, uh, in, in Genesis 6 that uh, the thoughts of the intentions of man's heart, remember how he phrased it, was only evil continually. And then a couple of chapters later in chapter Genesis 8 verse 21 that uh, this is from our youth, from our youth. You, you don't have to teach a kid how to sin. Isn't that amazing? They never need instruction in that. They need instruction in everything else. So we've got polluted roots. We've got a profane reputation. Furthermore, we've got uh, perverted reasoning. In, in Ephesians 4, Paul gets into how that we can't even think straight. Our, our head's not straight. There's There's also perpetual resistance. Uh, We've looked at Romans 1, how unsaved man wants to suppress the truth of God and unrighteousness. While we're yet sinners, Romans 5, Christ died for us. Colossians 1, we uh, we were alienated and hostile in mind. You know the biblical revelation of man is totally contrary to a secular worldview that postulates the inherent goodness of man. You know, if we, if we, the the longer you know Christ, the longer you search the scriptures. When when you got saved, you knew you were a sinner, because that's part of coming to Christ. You knew your condition, but the more you grow, you realize. How much worse off you really were! How, how how dead your deadness really was, right? And so, as we look at the obstacles of not only unsaved man trying to construct ministry, but even believers, this uh, sinful hangover that we are uh, experience. Total inability, that's what we can do, to please God on our own, absolutely nothing. I was listening to a, uh, uh, there's a sermon series that I was listening to by Ligonier Ministries yesterday where Steve Lawson had uh, 12, 23-minute preaching segments on You Must Be Born Again, taken from the best passage, John, John 3, Unless you be born again, Jesus says, what? How does he he finish it? You cannot see the kingdom of God. Cannot. And you know the difference between may and can, as we instruct our kids, uh, you know, can I do this? Can I not do that? Uh, May is a word of permission. Can is a word of ability. And so Jesus chose his words very cautiously when he says, "You, you cannot get to my kingdom unless you be born again. Uh, A dead man needs a spiritual resurrection. He needs the new birth. And not only corruption from within do we experience as an obstacle to pleasing God, but how about satanic opposition? And we could spend time, if we had it, looking at various passages about the uh, how we are led by the prince of the power of the air Ephesians 2:2 2, 1 2. John 5:19 we're told that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one so many obstacles to conducting biblical ministry So, uh, a conclusion to draw from uh, biblical revelation is, first of all, the hopelessness of man-centeredness. For the lost sinner to recognize that he is enslaved to sin, self, and Satan, and even you as a believer, the saved sinner, that man-centered hangover, We were talking yesterday in men's study in regards to uh, 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 right after God talks about how that the evil of man had multiplied, that the uh, intentions of his heart was only evil continually, we're told shortly thereafter that Noah, what, found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God intervened in his life amazingly, taking the initiative. And, uh, you know, unless man think that he pulled himself up by his own bootstraps, we recognize that God not only initiated salvation in our lives, but He's the one that sanctifies us. Be highly suspect of our own sanctification. So there's the the hopelessness of man-centeredness, but... The hope of God-centeredness. Look at the butts of the Bible. You know in that, in that great passage in Ephesians 2 where, where Paul cuts it straight, exposes the heart of man before Christ, that you were dead, but now you are what? Alive. He made us alive. He raised us up with Him. We're His workmanship unto good works that we'd walk in them. You know, I often think when I come to Ephesians two and the and the butt God of uh, Martin Lloyd Jones preached a whole sermon on that. You know, uh, preaching on the butts of the Bible, God's intervention. When you look at your life as a Christian, or the minist- uh, how you serve the Lord in ministry, ask what what would be different if God hadn't intervened, would would things look the same? A God-centered view has major ramifications for us serving Christ, how we counsel, how we worship, how we disciple, how we offer God grateful service for what He's done. I gave you a handout so that uh, we're not going to go through all these verses, but, you know, recollect on the sovereign grace of God, that He's the architect of redemption plan. And as architect, He takes the initiative. So many verses uh, we could go through, several in Matthew, uh, one one that I didn't list there. Chapter thirteen, verse eleven: To you it has been granted. You know, uh, sovereign grace is all through Scripture. You've got to have a theological bent against it to avoid it in Scripture. You know, in John six, verse forty-four, we're told Jesus says, "None can come unless the Father what draws him." Dead men can't respond. I've told you before in Sunday school, I've I've done dozens and dozens of funerals and I've never had a dead person complain about the funeral I did for them. They can't talk. They can't move. They can't interact. There must be resurrection. So God's the architect. God takes the initiative. He set His love upon Israel. He set His love upon you and myself. He opened Lydia's heart. Salvation belongs to Him. So, as you think about your personal walk with Christ and how you seek to conduct ministry and ask, is it biblical? Let's just take this one passage and we'll move on. In John 6... I'd already referred to one of the verses. John 6, verse number 37. This is just one of those chapters that uh, I, I thought that we ought to set our eyes on again because it's got so many verses again showing God's sovereign initiative in our lives. John 6 and verse number 37 Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Here you've got man's responsibility and God's sovereignty all in the same verse. Was it a matter of me coming or or God granting? Yes. Later down in uh, verses 44 and 45, he reiterates, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Down in verses 64 and 5, there are some of you who don't believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray Him. And he was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Look down at, uh, uh, look over at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Drawing an application from some of this. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul's talking to the church at Corinth about ministry. Remember how he sets God's wisdom apart from man's wisdom, which is what we're talking about here. In 1 Corinthians 3, beginning in verse number 5, as there's been divisions, you What then is Apollos, and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. Even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So, who gets the credit? Apollos or Paul? Neither one. So, then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. So, when it comes to how do we conduct ministry… That answer is not within ourselves, it's outside of us. God causes the growth, not man. So, I was rattling through a lot of this rather fast because I wanted to get to this point. Because I only got one Sunday for this lesson because I'm going to be gone next week. When you look at all those commands that I mentioned in the introduction, what is your answer? How do we do this? Thoughts? Okay. We don't. God does. How does he do it? Very practically. Let's let's pull it out of abstraction. If God does it, how does God do it? Okay, faith. What else? If, I could, if you would allow me to oversimplify and say that there's, there are two very concrete items that God gives the believer to conduct ministry His way. One is a propositional weapon and the other is a personal weapon. The propositional weapon is The dynamic of the word and the personal weapon is the witness of the spirit. Today's Sunday school lesson is very foundational that ought to be repeated and reflected upon and meditated on regularly in our lives. That it's not a matter of reinventing church, finding the new program that's going to finally make it fly in 2014 that it's still the way it always has been that God's given two resources and two only to His church. One is the Word, the other is the Spirit. The dynamic of the Word, we could look at several passages, let me just mention one that's listed there in Psalm 19. The psalmist tells us about the law of God, His Word. He says it's perfect, it's sure, it's right, it's pure. In other words, it is everything that man's wisdom is not. If man is totally incapable of constructing biblical ministry and instead has to submit to God, well, his accomplishes everything. It's perfect, sure, right and pure, according to Psalm 19 verses seven and eight. In First uh, in Thessalonians, chapter two and verse number 13, as Paul reflects upon ministry there, he says, "For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you receive the word of God, which you've heard from us. They're they involved in teaching the word. And as they received it, they received it. Not as the word of men. But for what it really is, the word of God, which is also which also performs its work in you who believe. Either we believe that or we don't. Either the word, you know, when either the word works or it doesn't it performs or we try to perform one accomplishes something the other doesn't paul writes to his young protége timothy about ministry what the church is and how it's to operate in first and second timothy and in second timothy 3 in verse 15 a verse that many of you have probably memorized he, he, he looks back at Timothy's past and he says, from childhood, you've known the holy writings which are able to make you wise unto salvation. They are able. They're profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped unto every good deed. The writer to the Hebrews writes in Hebrews 4 verses 11 and 12 in regards to this word he says that this word is living. This is the only book on your bookshelf that is alive. This is no dead book. Matter of fact uh, As you read this book, this book reads you, according to the writer of Hebrews. What does it do? When you get in this book and this book starts to get in you, he says it reaches down, it's active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, and here's how it, it pierces as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You know, this book produces life change and it gets down into the cracks and crevices of a life where you and I can't get to. But it can. Rather than pragmatics or any kind of methodology that we think works that are shallow and change or affect very little, definitely not for eternity, the writer here says this is a living book. It is active. It is the sharpest instrument in the arsenal of the believer. It's the only arsenal besides the Spirit. He says in verse 13 that there is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. You know, even in your evangelism and you preach the gospel, they they cut you short after quoting one verse to them. That one verse of Scripture is still living and active and going to be what haunts them till the day they bow the knee to Jesus Christ. The power is in the Word, not in the methodology, not in the eloquent words. Peter says about it that it, it is imperishable, it is living and enduring. In other words, this doesn't change. You look at all these people tr- trying to reconstruct church and, and ministry, They're, it's always changing. New method, new strategy. James says in James 1.18 that we were brought forth by the word of truth. You are birthed into God's family when the gospel is preached to you. You know, you know what my question is? You know, as, as the writer of Hebrews says that it's living and, uh, living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing, it's a reference to a surgeon's scalpel. So, when it comes to doing sin surgery and heart transplants, we don't want just to have uh, more moral sinners, do we? We're talking about transformation of life from the inside out. So why are you going to use a butter knife? Take out the scalpel, beloved. Let's do that. God's given a propositional weapon to slay every obstacle in its way of sin, self, and Satan. And it's the dynamic of the Word. And He's also given a personal weapon, the Spirit of God who dwells within. We'd already referred to 1 Corinthians 3, but uh, in the chapter before that, 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 10, we're told that the wisdom of God is revealed through Him. We're told that the Word of God, according to Ephesians 6, is the sword of the Spirit the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, which is the Word of God. That is the principle about the power. Jesus teaches about the present ministry of the Holy Spirit that He would leave behind, one of the same sort as He was, one who is God, who would not just be with us but be in us, What is His present ministry? He convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So when you go to evangelize the unbeliever, you you don't start with telling them what a great person they are. You introduce them to the Creator God that all of creation and the conscience testifies to as He reveals Himself on the page of Scripture, that He's holy, requires absolute perfection, Absolute obedience to His law, and man's broken that law, right? You take out the Word of God, and you unsheath your sword, and the Spirit of God uses that to convict them of their sin, their lack of righteous standing before God, and the judgment that hovers over them. Praise God that when you and I share Christ, you're not the only evangelist present, Praise God that when a preacher stands up behind this lectern or that pulpit, he is not the only preacher in the room, that as God's Word is giving out, the Spirit of God testifies to His Word of truth. These are the provisions of God. That's why when, after, after I get done preaching at the other church next week and come back, we're going we're to find ourselves in Galatians 5 and looking at the Spirit's ministry in the life of the believer. Because He is a provision of God for biblical ministry. So, let's draw a couple of applications or or conclusions to this. Uh, Conclusions which affect our method in ministry. We're talking about the Holy Spirit's working with His Word being the only weaponry capable of subduing rebellious man. Those are, that's an exclusive statement that is intentional, that it is only the Holy Spirit working with His Word that can subdue rebellious man. First Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 5, going back to the ministry to Paul at Thessalonica, like we'd already referred to earlier. He says, for our gospel didn't come to you in word only. they didn't just say the word of God. But it came in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know, what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. This is the living and active word of God that was brought to Thessalonica to produce life change. God's truth combined with God's Spirit is special, dynamic, and power, and the only power that there is. It is exclusive. You look at biblical patterns to illustrate this all throughout Scripture. All the prophets and the apostles would record their writings and proclaim thus says the Lord. Why am I so uh, cranked up about teaching hermeneutics to folks here at Newtown Bible Church? Because God is the last one you want to put the words in the mouth of. And when you say, thus saith the Lord, it better be indeed what He has said. Ezekiel. Speak because they're a rebellious house. Whether they listen or not, and they'll know that a prophet's been in their midst. Peter says, if you speak, you better make sure you speak as the oracles of the very utterances of God. So as we look for, a, for biblical patterns to, to pattern our individual lives and our church ministry after, our preaching, our teaching, our evangelism, our counseling, our discipleship, we look for models like these guys. When there was that great reformation under Josiah, what drove the reformation? It was God's truth, Second Kings 22 through 33, which we'll be reading about in a few short days in our Bible reading plan. You look at the reformations under Nehemiah and Ezra. It was all centered around the reading and proclamation of the truth, where you'd have the preacher stand up behind a wooden lectern, and he would read the Word and give the people the sense of the Word. They practiced expository preaching, exposure to the Word, explanation of the Word, and exhortation to do that Word. Lasted for six hours as they translated and explained the Scriptures. And that is what drove Reformation in Israel. You don't just find biblical patterns in the Old Testament, you find them in the New as well. You look at our Lord's example. When the Spirit of God led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted, You know the accounts well. How Jesus overcome? He overcame by the Word of God. And though the point of the passage there in Matthew 4, 1 through 11, is not to give us steps as Christians to overcome temptation because the whole point is the deity of Jesus Christ, His sinlessness. But it does give us a great example of how He overcame Jesus, when He's walking about, and He comes across a couple of the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they're talking amongst themselves, and they're downtrodden. We're told in Luke 24, 13, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which is about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus Himself approached and began traveling with them. Notice the next verse. They didn't didn't notice that it was Him. Their eyes were prevented. For sovereign purposes of God, God withheld the identity of Jesus. Prevented from recognizing Him. Verse 17, He said to them, what are these words? What's going on? They stood still looking sad. One of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only one in Jerusalem? Who doesn't know? (laughs) Are you the only one that was sleeping? Hello, Jesus was just crucified. Wake up. Verse 19, what things? The things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him, of course, we were hoping that He was going to be the one that redeemed Israel. The story goes on. Notice verse 25. He says, O foolish men, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. They are relying upon emotion. They are relying on experience. We saw it validated before our eyes. He died. And Jesus took them back to the Scriptures. He took them to the Prophets. To live by the word of God. He says, You're foolish men slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't, wasn't it necessary for Christ to suffer these things to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. He had a, a prolonged Bible study with them. Amazing example by our Lord. How about the uh, uh, procedure of uh, Apollos in Acts 18? We're told that he was mighty in the Scriptures. He was speaking and teaching accurately things concerning Jesus. How about Paul, Uh, a model for ministry methodology? He says in 1 Corinthians 2, the basic gist is it's not human ingenuity. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5, these are spiritual weapons for our warfare, the Spirit of God and the Word of God, spiritual weapons for spiritual warfare. So, as we contemplate ministering to unbelievers with the gospel, ministering to the unregenerate, since by very nature… Man is sold out to sin, self, and Satan. The one who is ministering must plug himself into the power source of the Word of God, praying that God the Spirit will use words from the Word to accomplish His sovereign pleasure. And I'm not just talking about the unbelievers out there in your workplace. I'm even talking about when when we are, as parents, abandoning ourselves to God, realizing we cannot save our own children who are under our own roof. We teach them the Word of God, and we pray that the Spirit of God would penetrate dead hearts and give them a heart transplant. And evangelism here in the local church is not a matter of programs. It's not formating church to to, uh, accommodate and and make the unregenerate comfortable. It's the Spirit of God and the Word of God. How about uh, in conducting ministry to the saints, ministering to the regenerate, those that have experienced the new birth? The same basic method needs to be followed when ministering to professing believers because of that man-centered hangover. As I, as I told you, I, I mentioned in Bible study yesterday, uh, we ought to be always suspect of our own sanctification. Beloved, you're probably not as much like Christ as you think you are? I know I'm not. And, and so we ought, to, we ought to recognize that, that our, we've still got that hermiteological hangover the, as, as, as we are, are forgiven sinners but still commit sins. So the one who ministers or exercises his scriptural ob- obligations as you, as you minister your spiritual giftedness, You're most, most faithful when you draw your dynamic data from the Word and present those truths in a straightforward manner, humbly submitting yourself and the results to the Sovereign Spirit. So, rather than relying on, on experience, Peter says we have a more sure Word. You know, he, uh, in, in his epistle, he reflects upon, you know, he, I was there, he says. I was up on the Mount of Transfiguration. I saw it happen but we have a more sure word, he says. Better than personal experience and personal testimony, solely the Word of God to direct us. So, as we evaluate ministry in our own personal lives and our life as a church, what's your attitude as you share the truth? Are you convinced of a total dependence upon God and His resources? You know, We can't wrestle a sinner to Christ. I remember this guy in in one of the churches I pastored, he'd come back, he was was a faithful evangelist. He'd go out regularly and and share Christ with people, but he'd come back so frustrated because in his Arminian bent, he was thinking, you know what, they didn't get saved. I said, well, Eddie, did you discharge your duty? Were you faithful to the text of Scripture? Because you can't wrestle a sinner to Christ. You can't. You can take the best apologetic if they're hung up over our early earth creationism or, or hypocrisy in the church or any other thing that they try to get you off base on. Keep, just keep taking them back to the Word of God. Let's be cautious to do God's work, God's way, so we can get God's results. And many of you have... Probably memorized Proverbs three, five, and six, right? Uh, lean not on your own understanding in all your ways. All your ways. How many ways? All your ways. Acknowledge Him. Now that's that's a challenge. That's a discipline. I've shared with guys when I'm I'm teaching them on expository preaching, you know, you start the the study process in prayer, and then you start studying, and then if too long a time gap before you've prayed last, you ought to pray again because somehow uh, the flesh must have crept in, just being keenly suspect of your own sanctification and your own reliance. We got nothing to offer. If anything is accomplished of eternal values and holiness, who did it? God did. Yes, work out your salvation, but it's Him works, which works in you. And so we submit ourselves as Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. In all our ways, acknowledge Him, and He will direct you. You know, we, we ask the question like Paul does in 2 Corinthians two sixteen, Who is adequate for these things? Lord Jesus, You've commanded us to evangelize the world. You've commanded us to pray at all times. We're to work out our salvation. You've given all these expectations. Who is sufficient for these things? As Paul says, or asks. And then when we sit with Paul asking the question, who is adequate for these things? We must also answer that question as Paul answers it. That our adequacy, 2 Corinthians 3, 5, our adequacy is from God. Period. End point. Bold face in our minds. Meditate on the fact that our adequacy is from Him who's given us two resources for sanctification, two resources for evangelism, two resources for biblical counsel, two resources for offering grateful service with our giftedness. That is the Word and the Spirit. Let's dig into them and use them Father, help us to unsheathe our sword. We have an all-sufficient revelation in the Word of God of Your person, who You are, and Your plan, what You expect of us. Help us to solely rely upon Your Spirit working through Your Word. That way, You get all the accolades, all the boasting, all the praise for what You'll accomplish through our meager and feeble efforts that are humbly submitted to your use. For your praise and glory, we ask it. Amen.